Good morning. It's good to be here with you. Uh, so I'm off my crutches, which is awesome. And uh, Lucy turned one this week. And uh, both of her grandmothers are in town. So my mom's in town from Nashville and Brandy's mom's in town from Cincinnati this morning. So I hope you'll get to see them. Um, so since I came on staff in October, I've had lots of conversations with people where they were uh, kind of unclear who our elders and deacons are and what the difference between elders and deacons is and how they get chosen and things like that. And the last thing that we would want is for you to think that there's this mysterious group of men that put on dark robes and go in like a weird room and make decisions for the church. So my hope this morning is that I can dispel some of the mystique around those things. So we want you to know who your officers are. We want you to understand what they do and understand how they get appointed. So our main text this morning is 1 Timothy 3, which deals specifically with qualifications for church officers, but I hope that you're going to see it has something to do with each one of you as well. So uh, you can read along with me. You've got it here in your bulletin, or uh, with any luck, it's going to be on the screen also. So this is 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 13. Here's a trustworthy saying. Whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him, and he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders, so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. In the same way, deacons are to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and then, if there's nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be faithful to his wife and must manage his children and his household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to be able to assemble without fear of being hurt or persecuted. Thank you that we get to talk about your word to us. And I pray that you would um, speak to us all this morning so that we would have a more clear understanding of uh, who our officers are. I pray that you would speak to the officers themselves, that you would remind them of their calling. And I pray that you would show us how this passage applies to all of us. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So uh, back when Brandy was on maternity leave, she started watching this show called The Great British Baking Show. Does anybody know about The Great British Baking Show? Okay. Yeah. You either don't know what it is or you're a huge fan. Um, So 
it's kind of like a comic, uh, uh, a contest for like amateur British bakers. And if you don't know how it works, um, you start with a bunch of bakers, and every day they have three challenges that they have to do, and each week the judges eliminate one baker. So um, if I'm honest, like Brandy loves baking, and I love eating what she bakes, but baking is not really my thing, and neither is reality television. So when she told me about it, I was like, I don't think I'm going to like this. But you know where this is going. I watched one episode, and by the end of it, I was hooked. And so I've now seen every season that's available on Netflix. And by the end of the first season, I was just like, these are my friends. I want them all to win. Um, but so what, what they have to do uh, is they have to make like cakes and breads and all these different things, and they're timed so it gets really stressful. And so they might have this elaborate plan, but they don't have time to get it all done, or it might look great on the outside, and then they cut into it, and it's like, doesn't taste good, or it's too dry, and the judges are ruthless. So they want things to look amazing on the outside, and look amazing on the inside, and taste good also. So they want style plus substance. And in the same way, Paul, in this passage, is giving qualifications for church officers, and the standard is very high. They have to be able to lead and serve well. But they also have to be able to relate well with those outside of the church. Uh, So they have to be above reproach so that if you cut into the cake, you find that there's just as much substance inside as there appears to be on the outside. So as we dive in, I think we first need to ask, what are overseers and deacons? Who are these people that Paul is describing? Orangewood belongs to a denomination that's called the Presbyterian Church in America, or you'll commonly hear it referred to as the PCA. And 1 Timothy 3, the chapter that we're looking at today, is one of the main texts that the PCA uses to dictate the qualifications of elders and deacons, along with the first chapter in the book of Titus. And it's interesting because 1 Timothy 3 tells us a lot of the qualities and qualifications for overseers and deacons, but it doesn't actually tell us what they are. The reason why is Paul was writing this letter to a young, basically, pastor named Timothy, and he already knew what overseers and deacons were, so he didn't need a definition. But since none of us are Timothy, um, I'm going to describe them for you, and I'm going to start with the overseers. So the Greek word for overseer is episcope. And it, uh, it can sometimes be translated as bishop. Yeah, how'd I do, George? Probably my accent's not great, but uh, nope, he said no. Bad accent. Um, <clears throat> so epi means over, scopeo, that's where we get the word scope. It means to look. And uh, so episcope, that's where the Episcopal Church gets their name. You follow that? So... Paul uses the word, and and in our uh, translation, it's translated as overseer. So, episcope, overseer. But Paul uses the word overseer and elder interchangeably in different passages. So, if you look at Titus 1, he's talking about the exact same things, but he uses a different word, which we translate as elder. And the word he uses is presbuteros. Presbuteros, presbuterian. So, That's where we get that from, and it's translated as elder. So it doesn't matter if you get the Greek or remember it, except George probably should because he's got to go back to Greece. But um, the important thing is 
Overseer and elder are kind of used interchangeably. They mean the same thing. Follow me on that? So we are Presbyterian, and that means that we're not congregational and we're not Episcopal. Uh, Congregational churches make decisions in congregational meetings. So it's basically like a democracy. Everybody votes on everything and the majority rules. Episcopal churches authorize bishops to make decisions for the life of the church. So they basically have one person at the top of the church making decisions for them. Presbyterians, which is what we are, Presbyterians come together in groups elected by the church. They serve to make decisions, and these are the elders. So let's talk about elders. The elders collectively are called the session. If you didn't grow up in the Presbyterian church, I didn't grow up in the Presbyterian church. This can be confusing at first because you hear session and you think, isn't that like a unit of time? Like I'm going to go to a counseling session or, you know, but forget that. It's not a unit of time. It is the collection of elders. So elders, session, same thing. Follow me? Thumbs up if you follow me. Okay, so the session is all the elders. Elders are called by God and confirmed by the church to be shepherds of the local church. I'm going to say that again. Elders are called by God and confirmed by the church to be shepherds of the local church. So they're called to pray, to teach, to oversee the church, and to care for the church. Um, Verse 1 of our passage that we're looking at says, whoever aspires to be an overseer or elder desires a noble task. And when Paul uses noble, what he means is showing high moral principles and ideals. He doesn't mean royal or a privileged status. Because the office of elder, it's a noble task. It is a task. It's a responsibility. It's work and it's service to the church of Christ. So there are two types of elders. I don't want to lose you here. We're talking about elders and there's two types of elders. There are teaching elders and there are ruling elders. And that distinction kind of tells you the the broad categories for what elders do. They teach and they lead. So teaching elders, we call them pastors. Teaching elder, pastor, same thing. A pastor or teaching elder is someone who's on staff and is paid by the church. And teaching is one of the primary ways that they shepherd the church. So uh, we call them pastors. And the word pastor actually means shepherd. That's where we get pasture from. Our pastors have gone to seminary. And so usually they have a master of divinity. And they've been examined by the presbytery, which just means like the congregation of all the local sessions get together. And we're in this central Florida presbytery. So uh, periodically all the elders from central Florida get together and that's our presbytery. So we have two teaching elders that are on staff full time and you probably know them well. That's Chuck Berry and Joe Creech. And then Doug Fleming is also a teaching elder. He's on staff part-time at the church and he works with our salt ministry and he's on staff full-time at the school. So uh, you may be wondering where I fit in with this. And so I have finished my education. I have a master of divinity from RTS and I'm the pastoral intern here. So I'm doing pastoral sorts of things under the authority of the pastors and the elders. So I am aspiring to be a teaching elder, but I am not yet ordained. So I hope that's a good clarification for you. But I'd like to ask our teaching elders 
just our teaching elders right now and their wives to come up here so that you can see them if you don't mind. And while they're coming up here, I'm going to tell you about ruling elders. Ruling elders are the church leaders. So usually when we talk about elders, the ruling elders is when we're talking about a ruling elder is not paid by the church. Uh, There are exceptions to that, but when a ruling elder is on staff, their staff role is different than their leadership role, if that makes sense. So in the Presbyterian church, we have a plurality of elders, and that's just a fancy way of saying we have a bunch of elders, not just one or two. And that's a really good thing because it means we have men with a variety of gifts and passions serving our church. And it also means there aren't just one or two guys calling all the shots. So very few decisions are made by single individuals. And most decisions for the life of the local church are made by the session, by the elders. And so these range from providing for the spiritual nurture of the church to adopting a budget. And an example of this is over the past several months, uh, some of our elders have been praying and discussing our mission vision and values. And you're going to be hearing more about that in the coming months, but that's just something practical that the elders have been working on for us. So uh, at this time, I'd like to invite our ruling elders and their wives to come up to the front. And I'd like to also ask Pete Owenson to come up here. And Pete, who you know from the past year, um, He is an ordained teaching elder in our presbytery, and he was actually a teaching elder on our Orangewood staff back in the days of the Apostle Paul, right? That's his joke. Uh, Way back in 1986, uh, before any of us were born, he was a teaching elder here sharing, sharing an office with Joe. So... Orangewood sent Pete out to to plant Willow Creek in Tuscaloosa, where he was senior pastor for 26 years. And though he's not technically on staff, for the past year, he's been the primary preacher here. And we're so grateful to you, Pete, for stepping in at a time of need. We are honored to have you. So... In just a moment, I'm going to ask Pete to pray for our elders and their wives, but I just want to mention a few things about our elders' wives briefly. Um, first of all, these women are not elders themselves, so the point isn't like, oh, I couldn't find Scott. I'll just go to Amy. Uh, but I do want to mention and honor the wives because they make huge sacrifices them and their families in order for these men to serve. They work tireless hours, and most of them, they're not on the clock getting paid for this. It's they do their nine to five, and then they do the hard work of being an elder, and that's a sacrifice. And I, inevitably, I think wives of elders get roped into doing things that they probably wouldn't otherwise. So we really appreciate you wives also, and we want to honor you. So Pete, will you pray for our elders and their, and their families. Yes. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, thank you for this great and clear explanation of what your flock uh, in leadership does. And so, Lord, right now, we commit our teaching elders and our ruling elders to you. How thankful we are for them and how, how clear it is that you have caused them to be raised up at this point of time in history at, at Orangewood Church And that, Lord, you have made them qualified. You have enabled them to pass the exams. But their life is a a character, is a model for us. 
And so we thank you for our teaching elders and our ruling elders. We do thank you so much for the wives who support so much and, and have to deal with so much behind the scenes as well as people coming to them. And so, Lord God, we pray. And Lord Jesus, as you lead this flock, as you shepherd this flock, would you continue to give grace and mercy and wisdom to our leaders. Give them skill in every aspect of leading. And Lord, would you protect their hearts? Would you put a hedge of protection around them? May the, may the evil one be bound. May he be kept from their families, from their lives. Lord, would you enable them with power to carry on in service, even when others don't know what they're doing? Even when people don't see what they do in the meetings that they're in, Lord, would you bless them even when the larger body of Christ doesn't see what they do? And Lord, may we pray for them. May we support them. May we love them. May we encourage them. And would you in every way be honored and glorified as you put your blessing upon them? We are blessed because of these leaders. We commit them to you as we pray again in the strong name of our risen Savior, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you, uh, I told Pete that if we had had time, I would have gotten a horse so that he could ride up and down the line, Braveheart style, and like giving a stirring speech. <clears throat> uh, something important for us as a church to understand is that Orangewood is ruled by the session of elders. And that means that even as the pastoral search committee uh, seeks to find the new senior pastor for us, we're not without leaders. And that's significant. I want you to hear, really hear that. While we don't have a senior pastor, we are not without leaders. Um, and we don't have to wait until we get a senior pastor to be a church. We are the church now, and God is moving in Orangewood. Um, and it's exciting for me to be a part of it. And I hope that um, even as we recover, and even as there's still wounds and healing that needs to be done that, that you pray for and uh, believe in our elders, the leaders that God has called here. So that's the elders. Let's talk about the deacons now. Paul uses another Greek word, diakonos. How to do? Like a, like a six, six out of 10. Um, that's where diakonos, that's where we get the word deacon from. And it literally means servant, minister or waiter at table. So like when we think about like you go to Chili's and you have a server, that's almost like what is in mind here. But Acts 6, 2 through 4 distinguishes between elders and deacons and it gives us an idea of what role deacons played in the early church. So this is what that passage says. And the 12, and that means the 12 apostles, summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So we see that the deacons are appointed to serve so that the elders can focus on teaching. And that's a good broad distinction. Deacons serve, elders teach, and lead. Um, so the book of church order is, it's basically like the manual of the PCA for how church government works. This is what the book of church order says about deacons. It's the duty of the deacons to minister to those who are in need, to the sick, to the friendless, and to any who may be in distress. 
It's their duty also to develop the grace of liberality in the members of the church. In the discharge of their duties, the deacons are under the supervision and authority of the session. So the deacons are under the authority of the elders. So let me tell you that your deacons are unsung heroes here at Orangewood. They do mercy ministry and they approve the budgets for local mercy ministry, but they work incredibly hard every single Sunday here with setup, uh, with greeting, with ushering, and with collecting the offering. And you probably see our deacons a lot, but you may not know that they're a deacon. Um, But at this time, I would like to invite the deacons and their wives to come forward. Um, If... If you're within earshot. And as they come up, I just want to say a personal note. And Scott Brown, you can come up also. Um, When Brandy and I were new to Orangewood, we had only been here a few months. And um, Brandy was seven months pregnant. And we had just bought our first house. And it was a bit of a fixer-upper. We had to have all the uh, electrical stuff rewired and the... Walls just look like a mess of uh, drywall and old paint. And the day that we signed on our house, we got home and there were 14 people already at our house working on the yard with paint supplies. It would have taken us at least a month, Brandy and I, and they knocked everything out and almost everything out in a day. And it's because the deacons just rallied. They, they got together a group of people and they showed up and I didn't even know most of them, but it was at that moment in the midst of a really difficult year in this church that I thought, this is the kind of church that I want to be a part of. So I, you guys mean a lot to me. Um, and again, their wives sacrificed by having them serve. Um, and so I would like to ask uh, Scott Brown, who's one of our elders, to pray for the deacons and their families at this time. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this group of men and their families who you've called to serve this body. Lord, I've heard the stories of what they do, and it's amazing. They are faithful, and they're intentional, and Lord, they're effective. And Lord, just as we heard this story of what they did for Mark's house, I know they've done that for other homes. And I know they've entered into families and individuals who are hurting, who are in need, who have lost their jobs. They rise up and are the hands and feet of Christ to this body, Lord. They are the visible outworking of your spirit in this church. And I ask you to provide them blessing and honor and glory as they are so humble, Lord, I, it, as he said, people don't know what they do, except if you've, you know the deacons when they've helped you, Lord. And, and Lord, I ask that you raise up men and women in this church to come alongside. They need help. They need support. They need people stirring the hearts of the people in this church to raise their hands and say, hey, if there's a need, help me. I'll come help you. Just ask. And Lord, um, so I, I ask you to Fill them with power, and um, I'm just so grateful that they choose not only to look at their own interests, but the interests of others, and may they feel your blessing as they do that. And it's in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. You can have a seat. So now you sort of know who your officers are, and you've seen their faces, 
But I would encourage you to go online and in your bulletin, um, all their names are printed. And there's also, if you look on the sermon and notes page, you've got the URLs there where you can go and find their uh, pictures and, and bios. But I encourage you to get to know their names. And then more than that, uh, I'd encourage you to get to know them. It was intimidating to me coming on staff hearing we had so many elders and then a lot of deacons and I would hear names. And um, I am, I'm not exaggerating when I say there's not one of these men that I've gotten to know and haven't been incredibly impressed by them. There hasn't been any like, that guy's kind of a jerk or, you know. So, <clears throat> so get to know them. Uh, so the next question is, how are these guys chosen? First Timothy 3 doesn't say anything about how they're chosen. And so this means that there's some freedom in this process as long as it's done in a biblical manner and the officers are actually called by God. So in the PCA, officers are elected and this is how it works. I was going to read it from the book of church order, but only the lawyers here this morning would be able to understand it. So I'll just give you the gist. The elders announce a nomination period. And during that time, if you're a member of Orangewood, you can nominate men for office. And after the session, prayerfully examines these men um, and you know, figures out, yes, they are actually called to this. Then you, the church, vote on who becomes our officers. So if you've been here in the past several months, you know that we just did all of this. Um, in fact, in just a few weeks, we'll be installing three new elders that you nominated. And there's also a training class that just started this morning for officers. So in a moment, I'm going to finish by looking at our text today and looking at some of the actual qualities of the church officers. But what I want you to notice is that you, the church, nominate these men and you, the church, vote on these men. So I want you to, f- to know how this works and realize you're part of the process. Um, and that's the second most important reason for you to be familiar with this passage and with the characteristics of church officers. But the most important reason for you to be familiar with them is that it's really what all Christians are called to. Not just men, not just elders, not just people who are aspiring to be church leaders. Christ doesn't give us two different sets of standards, one for church officers and one for everybody else. Um, In verse 15, Paul says that you will know, he's given these characteristics so that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God. He's given us these instructions so that we know how all people ought to behave in the household of God. So we don't all have the gifting and calling of a church officer, but we're all called to live like residents in the household of God. So uh, we'll talk about some of the qualities now. And even though the office of elder and deacon are different, you'll notice as you go through the list that there are a lot of similarities and overlap between the qualities of elders and deacons. And it's because for someone to hold any office in the church, their life needs to reflect what the church is all about. Is through the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are set free from the dominion of sin. We are free to be who God actually created us to be. So there's a new way to be human. And this is what we should all be striving for. It isn't based on what culture values. It isn't based on our feelings. It's based on the word of God. And since God is our creator, 
God knows how we'll function best and thrive, and his principles are not arbitrary. They're the path to life. So as he gives us these kind of rules for how to live in the household of God, they're good. They're for us. And uh, I'm only going to talk specifically about a couple of the qualities, but I think all of them flow from the first quality, which is listed in verse two. It says the overseer is to be above reproach. Reproach is disapproval or disappointment. And so to say that elders are to be above reproach is to say that they're to conduct their lives in such a way that people within and without the church won't disapprove. In the same way, verse 10 says that deacons prove themselves blameless. So elders and deacons are to be above reproach. And that is my challenge and encouragement to each and every one of us in the household of God to be above reproach. Both the elder and deacon must be faithful to his wife. And this this phrase literally in the Greek is the husband of one wife. So this means two things. First of all, it means that elders and deacons are men. If they have wives, it means that they're men. This is significant because the PCA looks to scripture as the authority for how the local church operates. And because of this, the PCA only ordains male elders and deacons. But this passage also means, quite literally, that elders can only have one wife. And this was important for Paul's day because in Greco-Roman culture in the, in the first century, um, it was common for men to have multiple wives. And Christianity was countercultural in this way. It was common for people to have a wife that they had children with, but then they had mistresses and they had concubines. But... Paul says, not so in the household of God. That's not how this works anymore. You are to be faithful and you are to have one wife. First Timothy three addresses how both elders and deacons manage their households and their children. The way an officer of the church manages his children should be in accordance with the other attributes. So he, he says lots of things like, um, Elders and deacons are to be temperate and self-controlled. And in verse three says they're to be not violent, but gentle. And if you think about it, gentleness, meekness, and humility are Christian virtues, but they weren't seen as virtuous in the ancient world, right? In the days of Caesar, meekness is not what people were seeking after. And in fact, you could make an argument that in our culture, these aren't necessarily seen as virtues when the rubber hits the road. But this is how godly men are to manage their children in their household, because it's, it's not too difficult to get everyone in line by bullying and throwing temper tantrums, but that doesn't paint a picture of what the kingdom of God is like. And that doesn't give us a picture of what our heavenly father is like. So as these men manage their households, they're to cause us to see, cause the world to see there's something different about these people. This is what the kingdom of God is like. One time, Brandy and I were traveling and we needed to stay in St. Louis for the night. And a friend of a friend of a friend made some calls and said, hey, I've got this place that you guys can stay. He's not home right now, but he's gonna leave the door open for you. So we walked into this place. And if you can imagine that you're in some like, post-apocalyptic wasteland and you've been wandering the earth for five years and you stumble upon an abandoned pawn shop, that's kind of what this house was like. And I'm not exaggerating. There was just stuff, like 
broken appliances and old TVs and busted speakers. And it all had dirt on it. And I don't mean like it was dusty. It had dirt on it inside. And we couldn't find like a sink or food or any signs that human beings lived there. So needless to say, we did not spend the night there. Uh, But more than not wanting to stay there, we thought, what is this person like? Like, let's get out of here before this dude shows up because who lives like this? Because see, the way you manage your household says something about you. It's a reflection of who you are. And in verse five, Paul says, if anyone doesn't know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? So it's really important that our officers manage their household well because they are going to be managing God's household also. So when looking for people to manage God's household, we need to look for people who manage their household well. Paul says the elders must have a good reputation with outsiders and that in the same way, deacons are to be worthy of respect. So church officers can't just be well thought of by people in the church. They should be well thought of by everyone. And if you know your elders or your deacons, everyone that I know, I can say that's true. I know that the people at work say that guy's a hard worker. That guy will do anything for you. They should have the kind of life that people can't help but like them, whether they agree with them or not, because it's a lot easier to hear what someone has to say when you respect them. Is it not? So that's who we're called to be. That's who we're all called to be. Um, and I want to I wanna say something to the women because I know that uh, it's hard hearing only men can be ordained in these offices and there's all this stuff about being dads and husbands and it kind of feels like, well, what about the women? Is there anything directed toward the women? And I want you to notice that in verse 11, we find an interesting sidebar in Paul's discussion of deacons. He says, in the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. And women, I want to say to you that women's roles in the church are different from men's, but they're not less than a man's. Do you understand what I'm saying? Your role is different than a man's, but it's not less than a man's. What, what Paul is talking about here, it's not, it's not a third office where there's like, there's elders and there's deacons and there's women. But remember, he's talking, he literally, it's almost this aside in the middle of him talking about deacons. He's like, oh yeah, and women. Deacon, remember, means servant. So he's talking about women who are serving in the church. And today, Christianity is often criticized for being sexist or for having a low view of women. But I want to shed some light on this. This is, this is a fact that I didn't realize until recently, but in the Greco-Roman world in which the early church existed, the population was about two-thirds male. It was about two-thirds male. Women were seen as inferior and less desirable, and so it was a common practice to expose female babies, and that means literally throw them out. So there were more men than there were women because people were literally murdering their female daughters. But in a world that was two-thirds male, in the first and second centuries, Christianity was two-thirds female. In In a culture that was dominated by men, there were more women in the church than there were men. And you have to think, what was that about? Why was that? 
It's because the dignity of women was affirmed. And many of the uh, cult religions of the Greeks and the Romans, women weren't even allowed. But the message of the gospel is that all are welcome. There was a place for women in the church. They weren't just trophies for the men. They weren't less than the men. They were seen for who they truly are, which is fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of the creator himself. So this is what Paul means when he says there's no male or female. There's no slave or free. So women absolutely had an important role in the early church. At the end of uh, Paul's letter, Romans, in the closing, he greets and acknowledges a long list of people and commends them for their ministry. Nine of them are women. And these women, they were incredibly active in the church and instrumental in advancing the kingdom of God. And so I say to my sisters here today, you have an important role in this church. And you are needed and you are valued. You're gifted in ways that men are not. But like men, in order to serve the church, you're called to be women of noble character. And lastly, I have a charge for the whole church as you consider the responsibility of both choosing leaders and being leaders. I want you to notice the qualifications of elders and deacons that are not present. There's nothing about them being powerful and influential. There's nothing about being wealthy. There's nothing about being business-minded or a CEO type. I have actually heard a pastor say, you've got to try to find elders who are powerful and wealthy, and you've got to give them a place of authority. So you want to make them an elder so that they'll stick around and you will get their tithe. Because if they leave, you lose their tithe. That's disgusting to me. I think that's disgusting to God because these might be standards that our culture holds up as virtuous, but the kingdom of God is countercultural. The church is not built on strength or wealth or prestige, it's built on the firm foundation of Jesus Christ, who had all the power in the world. But he laid down his life in sacrificial love. That's the kind of leaders that we need. That's the kind of leaders that we want to empower you to be. Whether you're an elder or a deacon or not, we want to empower you to go to your schools and go to your workplaces and lay down your life and show them, I have the power of God, but I'm not going to use it to dominate other people. I'm not going to use it to belittle people. I'm going to use it to draw people in the way Christ used his power and his authority to draw people into himself. Friends, your elders and deacons are working tirelessly, prayerfully serving the body of Christ according to their gifting and calling. And it's what we're all called to do, to serve according to our gifting and calling. So I encourage you literally to pray about this. If you don't know what you're passionate about, ask yourself, what breaks my heart? What is my gifting? Ask someone who knows you well. What, what are you called to? How can you serve? And also think about these qualities as you think about nominating officers. Think about these qualities as you look at these men and realize they've been taken through the ringer and they're here. They're called by God. They're affirmed by the church. So these are men and, and women that I want to get to know. But I want to leave you with the words of Jesus. He said, The greatest among you shall be your servant, 
Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray. God, thank you that you are alive and moving and acting in the life of Orangewood Church. Thank you that you have given us your word. Thank you that you have given us godly men to lead and to teach and to serve. We thank you for their wives who support them, who love them well. We thank you so much that every man and woman in the household of God is valuable and is an adopted child of the one true king. Lord, I pray that you would move our hearts and bless us as we continue to worship and as we come to the table. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.